Uh, I have to say just something about uh, about our team. I, I did slip in the back of the uh, evening worship service last night for the Disciple Now, and uh, the gentleman running the sound just made a comment. He said, you know, that's just a really nice team, and he was talking about Mark and and Brad and John and and then Christy's up there in the sound booth running, running actually the video, and she's running the video and holding her hand up at the same time, which is pretty talented when you think about it. And I was thinking, you know, we really are blessed. And there is a verse that I'm touching on today. It's in humility, consider others better than yourselves. But I don't even know if this is humble, but I get to work with people that I consider better than myself. And I feel that way toward a great many of you. I feel that way toward our deacon body. I feel that way with regards to the people that lead us in worship in this service and in the other service. I feel that way toward our Sunday school teachers and volunteers and the people who work in the kitchen. Don't you feel that way? Don't you feel blessed to be a part of this family? And uh, We've been in this series on uh, relationships, and we've been talking in particular about getting to the core of relationships. We're We've been trying to touch on truth that is not just relevant to marriage or friendship or a relationship with a neighbor or a stranger. We've been kind of at the heart of relationships. And uh, we've pretty well established that if we are going to have a life that matters, we need to do relationships well. And I think most of us, we feel that and we sense that, especially when we go to funerals, especially when we reflect on our own lives. We know that if I'm not doing relationships well then I'm not living a life that really matters or it doesn't matter the way I think it should. And that's not just your intuition speaking. That's what the Scripture teaches. We looked at this uh, a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we saw that if you want to live a life well, you need to live a life of, of good, positive relationships. And if you're going to do relationships well, you have to have love at the center of it. If you want a life that matters, you do relationships well with love in the center. It's not all that complicated. But today I just want to sort of wrap a few things up, just thinking about the life that matters. Because we want to make sure we're, we're aiming at the appropriate target. How many of y'all have been watching the Olympics, any of the Olympics? Okay, several of us have been into the Olympics. And I know Deb's into the Olympics because my little covenant group meets over at her house. And uh, so we... You know, we're down at the table with Eric and, uh, and Al and, and a couple other guys, and uh, Glenn Dupchek. And anyways, we're, we're there in the house, and every once in a while I can hear Deb upstairs going, Woo! It's like, what in the world is going on? Like, I mean, I like studying the Bible, but I just kind of felt like I was in the wrong room half the night. But uh, anyways, I love this, the stories around the Olympics. Sometimes the, the Olympic coverage is better just doing the interviews with the athletes than the actual competition. I kind of feel that way about some things. How many of y'all would say, I'd rather watch a good interview with an athlete than ice curling? Okay, good. That's about half of us. But I, 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 like, the, I like the Olympics, but one of my favorite Olympic stories comes from several years ago. This is in 2004. It's the Summer Olympics. And there's this guy named Matt Emmons who is competing in the three-position rifle shoot. And all he has to do to win the gold medal is hit the target. He just has one shot left. All he has to do is hit the target, and he wins. He's that, he's that far ahead. But in a, a mistake that is extremely rare for elite competition, he was standing in lane two, and he hit the target in lane three. 
You know what you get for hitting the wrong target, even if you hit it pretty well and accurately? You get a zero. So he moved from first place to eighth place and went home without a medal, all because he had the wrong target in his sights. Every once in a while, I think we need to pause and ask ourselves the question, am I aiming at the right target? Because when it comes to my life, I've got just one shot to take. And what the Bible is trying to communicate in so many different places, in so many different ways, is if you don't have the right target, and that target being love specifically, love expressed in servanthood, then you really need to rethink your aim. This morning, we're going to be wrapping up this this little series today as we go back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through His Word. The text is uh, verses 3 and 4. It tells us, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Now, Jesus teaches in so many different ways in the Gospels something that is reiterated by the Apostle Paul here in Philippians. And that is, if you want a life that matters, you live a life of love, specifically love expressed in servanthood. And the bullseye on the target is a life of love expressed in servanthood, exactly like the servanthood of Jesus Christ. That's the bullseye. So what we're going to do this morning is just sort of... um, Get our sights set appropriately. Getting your sights set appropriately is, is it's everything. I, I remember, actually the last time I went hunting, and it's been years since I've done this, you always go out there and you'll shoot at the target to make sure your sight is right before you actually go hunting the deer and all the rest. And so I'm on this range. It's 100 yards. No kidding. First shot. Bullseye. You couldn't even tell where the bullet was hardly because it was just right on the lines. That has never happened to me before, and it will never happen again because I'm never going to shoot at a target ever again for the rest of my life because I want my last shot to be a bullseye. <laughs> it wasn't, and it wasn't my, and the thing is, it wasn't my rifle. It was somebody else's rifle. They had set the sights perfectly for me. And I was really grateful for that reality because I don't know how to set sights very well. But here's what happens. The Bible sets the sight for you. And all your job is is to simply accept what is being given to you right here. So what we're going to do is we're just going to look at verse 4 and the the second half of verse 3. And we're going to go in that order. We're going to start with verse 4 and tear it apart, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then we're going to focus on the second half of verse 3, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And here's what we're going to do with verse 4. We're going to start by just contrasting what the Bible actually says with what it doesn't say. And there are three things in particular I want you to get. First of all, you'll notice that the Scripture says each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What verse 4 does not say is each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of a few others. It doesn't say look to the interests of a few others or some others, just others. Because if the Bible said you just need to look to the interests of a few others or some others, well, we'd already be be doing okay. Because everybody already serves selectively. But when you serve selectively, when you look to the interests only of a few others, 
it's not always so much about their interests as it is about your interests. Let me explain it to you like this. We know in our society we operate by a pecking order of sorts. And most of us will treat with a little bit more sincerity, a little bit more service, a little bit more intentionality, people who are higher on the pecking order than ourselves. But when people are lower on the pecking order in our society, we don't treat them with such sensitivity. And so let's just say the president of the company comes into your cubicle. Well, you're very intentional and you're tuned in and you're dialed in because you want them to stay and you have the conversation. I got so good to see you. Glad you're here. What can I do for you? And you try to keep them in your space as long as you can because it's to your advantage to be in the same space as the person who's higher up than you. But if somebody comes by to empty your trash can, well, maybe you don't even look at them. Maybe you don't even say anything. Maybe out of the corner of your eye you see them and maybe you grumble under your breath. I wish they'd come back at some other time when I wasn't here as if they weren't even there. This is the pecking order. And the pecking order that that human beings have in our fallen world system is much like the pecking order in the chicken kingdom. Only chickens can attribute their behavior to animal instinct. We have to attribute our behavior to fallenness. Self-absorption, self-promotion, self-advancement. Just self, 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 self. So just to be real clear here, in our fallen state, here's the reality of you and me. We have a tendency, at least a tendency, to relate to people on the basis of our determination of what it is that they can do for us. Much of how we relate to people is figuring out, well, can this person help me in terms of career advancement or connections or social standing or popularity? And so we treat people differently up and down the pecking order. And the Apostle Paul steps into the midst of this self-drenched pecking order swamp, and he says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And not just a few others or some others, but just others. CEOs or Uber drivers, it doesn't matter, just others. That's the first thing I want you to notice. There's something else I think we need to notice by by way of contrast. What the verse actually says is each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What it doesn't say is each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the inadequate interests of others. Or you might say insufficient or superficial interests of others. And here's what I'm getting at. We have a tendency when we think about the interests of others to not think as seriously about their interests and needs as we think about our own interests and needs. We have a tendency to skim over the surface when it comes to the interests of other people. You know what it is to skip a rock? You skim it over the surface. You're, you're trying to throw it hard, but you don't actually want it to sink into the water. You just want it to skip over the top. And that's what we do sometimes with the interests and needs of others. It may seem like we're throwing hard at it, but we're only wanting to stay on the surface and we're trying to stay on the surface as long as we can. That means you're not treating and I'm not treating the interests of other people with the same intentionality or the same serious-mindedness with which we treat our own interests. Let me see if I can go at it like this. Let me tell you a story. There was this uh, wealthy landowner in his limo driving down I-35 and he saw these pathetic men, two men, down on their hands and knees, eating grass beside the highway. So he tells his limo driver to stop. He pulls over. The man gets out, and he asks these two guys, what are you doing? And they say, well, we're, we're eating grass. 
And the man says, well, why? And, and the first man says, well, because we don't have enough money to buy food. So the wealthy landowner says, well, you need to come with me back to my house. And the first man says, but I have a wife and three kids. And he says, bring them all. The second man says, I've got a wife and six kids. And the man says, it doesn't matter. Bring all of them. So the two men get into his limo. They go pick up their respective families. And everybody's going back to his place. On the way, the first man says, thank you so much for taking us back back to your place. You don't know what it means to us that someone would take us in and treat us like this. And the man says, don't worry about it. You'll love my house. The grass there is nearly a foot tall. Now, that's not taking an interest in the interest of others the way you take an interest in your own interests. It's one thing to skim over the surface. It's another to intentionally meet an actual, real, deep need as opposed to one that's just going to get you off the hook. There's a a great story. It's really compelling. It's over in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Here's what the Apostle Paul or it is, well, actually, it's not Paul, it's Peter. It's a fantastic story out of his life. Here's what Luke tells us. Let me just read it for you. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Now this is right after the birth of the church, just days after the birth of the church, and Peter and John are going to the temple to pray, minding their own business, and and then this happens. And these two... These two men just walk in there and this, this, this beggar, this lame man, asks for some coins, probably just to buy a meal or two. And that's when Peter looks right at him and heals him. And here's what's so interesting about the story. There's lots of things interesting, but one of the things that's so compelling or interesting to me is that this man who is healed doesn't ask to be healed. Now, why does Peter heal him? The man doesn't ask to be healed. He doesn't even ask about Jesus. Jesus doesn't even come up. He just wants some money to buy a couple of meals. Why does Peter heal this man who doesn't ask to be healed? Well, the answer is pretty simple. The man needed to be healed. The man was lame. He needed more than money. In fact, he needed something even more than to walk. What he needed was a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And Peter saw that. And he saw that because he paused and he looked straight at the man. I love that little detail that he looked straight at the man, as did John. It kind of reminds me, it's a little bit reminiscent of the Zulu greeting, you know, I see you. The Zulus got it from Avatar. I see you. Uh, Actually, it's the other way around. It's like I'm not seeing past you or seeing behind you or seeing beneath you or beyond you or over you, around you. I, I see you. And when you see somebody, their needs register. And that's why the Apostle Paul says not, hey, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of a few others or to the superficial interests or the inadequate interests of others. He doesn't say that. But here's another contrast that you need to see. 
One more thing worth, worth noting. What verse 4 actually says is each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What it does not say is each of you should look not to your own interests, but only to the interests of others. We need to notice that Paul never says, hey, totally disregard yourself and disregard your own needs. And go ahead and disregard the needs of your family while you're at it. He doesn't say that. Going back to Acts chapter 3. You know what's also interesting to me in this chapter? And that is, this is the only occasion that we have in Scripture that I'm aware of where somebody is healed by an apostle who doesn't ask for it. You don't see in the New Testament the apostles just going all over the place, healing people all day long, 24-7, until they're tired and exhausted and go to bed, and then they wake up and start doing the same thing the next day. This is the only occasion, any apostle is apparently the only occasion that Peter ever heals somebody who doesn't ask for it. And so the question is, why does Peter heal this man who doesn't ask for it? And the explanation is really, really simple. The Holy Spirit leads him to do it. The Holy Spirit leads Peter to do this the same way the Holy Spirit led Peter to say what Peter said in the previous chapter on the day of Pentecost. And likely, the Holy Spirit is leading Peter to do what he does so as to draw a crowd so that he can preach the gospel to this crowd the same way the Holy Spirit does remarkable things in Acts chapter 2 so that Peter can speak to this entire crowd about Jesus Christ. But whatever the reason is, here's what you need to understand. Peter, along with all the rest of the apostles, didn't have an Acts chapter 3 day every day. They didn't just walk around healing people willy-nilly. You know why? Because the apostles knew that they weren't the Messiah. There's one Messiah, and they weren't the Messiah. There's only one God, and they weren't God. They didn't play God in people's lives. Here's what they did. They just did what God led them to do when God led them to do it. Because for the disciples and for the apostles, just like for you and me as modern-day disciples, here's how it works. You just follow God, and you do what God leads you to do when God leads you to do it. Because God never asks you to do something that you cannot do. He always asks us to do things that we can do. Here's what I'm wanting you to see. It, you got boundaries. And, and sometimes you have limitations because you're a human being. Sometimes people have this tendency to think, you know what, if only I could be like Peter or Paul, if only I could heal people like Peter or write like Paul or preach like Apollos, if only I had millions of dollars, then I could really give to missions and do some really good things and give to God. And that is wrong thinking. It's wrong thinking. Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, let your light shine. You shine with what you have. You don't shine with what you don't have. Peter doesn't focus on playing God, but neither does he focus on doing what he cannot do. If he was focusing on what he could not do, here's what he would do. He would say, you know, I don't have silver and gold. I can't help you. But he simply does what God leads him to do, and whatever God leads you to do, you can do, because God has an agenda for your life, and it's not to do everything, but it is to do what he's calling you and leading you to do, because following Jesus is intensely personal. We referenced this last week in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, for me, will find it. The for me part is really, really important. Yes, you're supposed to lose your life for Jesus, and that means you follow Jesus wherever he leads, whenever he leads, and you do whatever it is, is he wants you to do, wherever he leads you to do, whenever he leads you to do it. It's all very, very personal. But you don't need to lose yourself to some guilt-driven or 
codependent expectation thing. This happens pretty frequently, and it happens pretty frequently around churches who aren't necessarily very grace-oriented, because I've seen it happen. What I mean is, while God calls you to be a servant, you're not called to be servile. While He wants you to be a servant, you don't need to be a doormat, letting people wipe their feet on you 24-7, because then your service is not an expression of love as much as it is an expression of bondage to either guilt which has nothing to do with the gospel, or bondage to playing Messiah. And if you're playing Messiah, you don't know who the Messiah is, that has nothing to do with the gospel either. It's okay sometimes to say no to certain things because you don't have 300 different leaders in your life. You have one leader in your life. That would be the Holy Spirit who is the presence of Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is who's leading you. It's okay to say no on occasion because when you're serving other people, yes, it's true. You've got their kings and queens created in God's image, designed to rule and reign. But guess what? You're a king or you're a queen too. And that's why Paul doesn't say each of you should look not to your own interests but only to the interests of others. Because your needs and your interests are important too. They really are. I had a conversation with a couple just this last week. They were interested in joining the church, but, hey, I'm taking care of my daughter who's got this, and I've got this going on over here, and we just can't serve the way we wanted to. And I just had to remind her. It's like, look, your needs and your interests are important too. They really are. But here's the balance in the whole thing. This is the truth. While your needs and your interests are incredibly important to Jesus, Your needs and your interests are not more important to Jesus than everybody else's needs and interests. And that means that sometimes your own needs and your own interests are going to appear to take a back seat to the needs and the interests of other people. It's going to appear that way. Let me tell you a story. It involves two different scenarios. Maybe this will help us to to get to thinking appropriately. Here's the story. Let's just say that there are these three guys, three friends, Their names are Mike, Fred, and Godfrey. And uh, they're wanting to go to their favorite peak, uh, Guadalupe Peak. It's 8,751 feet, and they go on this trail up to the peak. So they're walking along up to the peak, walking along this trail, and sure enough, on their way, this mountain lion jumps out about 100 yards in front of them on the trail. It's huge. It must be about 225 pounds. It is big. So all three of these friends, they freeze in their tracks, hoping the cougar will pay them no attention. But then Mike really quickly drops down to the ground, takes off his hiking shoes, and slips on his running shoes instead. Now the other two guys look at Mike and they say, what What are you doing? And Fred says, Mike, do you really think if that cougar charges that you're going to be able to outrun it? And he says, I don't have to outrun the cougar. I just have to outrun you two guys. Now... That's just a story, okay? That's the first scenario. And I don't think Mike would actually do this, okay? But here's the question. What would you do? Especially if you knew you could outrun the other two guys. What would you do? Now, here's what I actually think is, is, is going to happen. If, if this occurs, if this is the setup, here's what I think is going to happen. They're, they're, they're taking their little hike. Out jumps this cougar. All three of them freeze, and Mike says to the other two, there's no need for everybody to die. I will lay down my life for you guys. And then Fred says, I'm not going to let you do that. And Godfrey says, I'm not going to let you do that. And Fred says, I think it would be better if we all hung together anyways. And Godfrey says, yeah, if we allow you to be killed by this cougar, 
when we get back down to the bottom and tell your wife, Dee Dee, about it, she's going to kill us anyways. So, so you know what's happening? Here's, here's what's happening in this do or die moment of truth moment, okay? Mike is considering Fred and Godfrey better than himself, more important than himself. And Godfrey's considering Mike and Fred more important than himself. And Fred is considering Mike and Godfrey more important than himself. Everybody's considering everybody else more important than themselves. So just to finish the story, they all hang together. The mountain lion attacks, and it eats them all. Uh, Mike for breakfast, Fred for lunch, and uh, Godfrey for dinner. I don't Actually, I don't know exactly what will happen, okay? I was just kidding. I don't know. But here's the difference in the scenarios. Let's compare the scenarios. In the first, in the first scenario, uh, where every man is for themselves, here's what you have. First of all, each man is living in a very small world of me, myself, and I. Let's just say it's a small world of about 170 pounds. Also, you also you, you'll see that each man is being lifted up by only one person. Mike is only being lifted up by Mike, and Fred's only being lifted up by Fred, and Godfrey's only being lifted up by Godfrey. In the second scenario, here's what you have going on. They're in much bigger worlds because it's Fred and Godfrey and Mike all together. And it's not a world of 170 pounds. It's a world of 510 pounds, let's say. But more importantly, here's what you need to see. In the second scenario, Mike is being lifted up by Fred and Godfrey. And Fred is being lifted up by Mike and Godfrey. And Godfrey is being lifted up by Mike and Fred. And that's life in the kingdom of God. The second scenario is people, everyone, following Jesus who is teaching us all and leading us all to, in humility, consider others better than ourselves. And so the outcome is a little bit surprising when you start thinking about it because when Paul says, well, in humility, consider others better than yourselves, we think, well, there's going to be some big loser here. But that's because we're thinking individualistically, which Americans have a tendency to do. If you're thinking along the lines of an Eastern mindset, you're thinking collectively, and the reality is we're in a community together, and Jesus Christ is instructing you to, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. But he's also instructing the person seated next to you, and this person seated next to you, and this person seated next to you. And I look around this room, and I think, you know, I think I would rather not just be me lifting up me. I think I'd rather be lifted up by, you know, 199 other people. That just seems to make sense. That's life in the kingdom. We have a tendency to think that in humility, considering others better than yourselves is the standpoint of a loser. But that's only because we're not seeing the whole picture. We're not seeing that we're actually one in the body of Christ under the same Father, under the headship of the same Son, with the same Holy Blood covering us and feeding us from this one sacred heart. And the reason we sometimes think that we're going to be the loser if we live in humility, considering others better than ourselves, is because we're not seeing the long view. Jesus humbled himself, and you know what happened? In the long run, the Father exalts the Son, and he's given the highest place, the name that's above every name. This is not a posture for losers. It's a posture for winners. But it is a posture that is in keeping with the reality that we all belong to God, and we all belong to one another. Which, by the way, just if you're kind of wondering, when Paul says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves, is he kind of promoting some low self-esteem thing? 
like, uh, you know, I'm supposed to see myself as the least valuable, least important person on the face of the planet. No, that's not what's being communicated. Not really. If you look at the, the root of the word, the Greek word that's translated better, it occurs four other times. It's, it's higher echo. And, and this word, it, it occurs four other times in the New Testament. And in every one of those verses, it comes across as pretty plain that what we're talking about is lifting up above or elevating, lifting up. And that's why the uh, Open English Bible translates the verse like this. I like the translation. Rather than humility, lift others up above yourselves. That's the idea of the verse, not self-depreciation. What, what I mean is humility is bending low, but it's not because we've been beaten down by ourselves, but because it's the appropriate posture to lift up someone else. Think of a parent lifting a child or an adult lifting an aging parent, or you think of a groom lifting a bride and carrying her over the threshold. This is, this is a lowliness that is not unappealing. This is actually more along the lines of a passionate, heartfelt service that is appropriate for people who know they belong to one another and for people who know they belong to God. You go back to the, to the trail, and let's say instead of Mike and Fred and Godfrey, it's you as a parent, let's say, with two of your children. In humility, you lift them up and you lay your life down for that son or that daughter, and you do it gladly. Why? Because you know that if you give your life and they stay alive, you win. Because we're in this together. And the reality that Jesus Christ looked at me like that, that the Father looked at me like a child worth sending a son for, like Jesus looked at me as the older brother, looking at a younger brother saying, I'll gladly lay my life down for you. I don't know. That's not insanity. That's not seeing things inappropriately. Humility is a posture of greatness, yes, but it's also a posture of sanity. And it is the posture of a life that matters because a life that matters is a life that is poured out for other people. A life that matters is a life lived in love, expressed in authentic service to other people. Now, I know some of us are thinking, well, I don't know that I have that much to give, or I don't know if I could serve that well. Look, let's think about Peter, because what Peter had, I think everyone in this room has. Okay, You may not have the ability to heal people miraculously, but if the Lord and the Holy Spirit leads you, I would not be surprised if that ever happened. Because God's the same today as He was yesterday, and is the same as He always will be. I just Miracles don't surprise me. I think... The biggest miracle is people ever being converted. That's the big miracle. Everything south of that is it's just cheap stuff in comparison, frankly. But here's what Peter could have said. He could have said, well, I don't have silver and gold. I can't really do anything. Well, okay. But here's what he had. He had eyes with which to see legitimate need. He had eyes with which he could actually look at someone else and say, I see you. He had a right hand that he was willing to extend to touch another life and to lift it up. He also had a heart that was listening to the Holy Spirit. And he had a life that wanted to glorify Jesus Christ by following Jesus and doing whatever it is that Jesus, his Lord, would have him to do. 
You have this. When it gets right down to it, when it comes to a life that matters, when it comes to being used by God, it's not a matter of ability. It's a matter of availability.